You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. If you have never had a well-devised plan go awry, then you have likely never had a well-devised plan. All of us know what it is like to go through the process of planning something and thinking something through and coming up with an idea or something that we're scheming to do, only to have it be canceled or made null and void by circumstances which are beyond our control. I have to be honest with you, if it were up to me, I would not be standing before you here this morning. I would be sitting next to you. And I would spend my weeks crunching numbers, not crunching scripture, to prepare for a Sunday morning service. Because when I graduated from high school, I had two goals in mind. Number one, I was never going to read another book. Number two, I was going to go to college and get a certificate to become a certified public accountant. Now, how I was going to accomplish both of those, I didn't know, but I figured I could make it work. I was willing to compromise number one, the no reading part, if it meant that I could accomplish number two. Because being a certified public accountant would have allowed me to enjoy what were at that time my two loves in life, math and money. And so that was my goal. That was my drive. That was what I set out from high school to do. Now, I did not receive any vision. I did not receive any writing in the sky, any personal revelation. No prophet approached me to reveal to me God's will. I didn't get a word of knowledge. I did not hear a still small voice. I did not have a passage of Scripture jump off the page and become alive to me. God did not speak to me in a dream. But yet it is only in retrospect, as I look back, that I can see how God in His providence and in His sovereignty changed my heart, changed my mind, changed my desires and my drives, and by His good hand of providence has brought me to where I am today. And I can say without hesitation that I am grateful to God that He did not give me everything I wanted and that He did not allow me to accomplish everything that I had planned. When our plans go awry, it can be very frustrating. All of us have lived out and proved the proverb that the best laid plans of mice and men often what? They go awry. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. You plan your daily schedule. You sit down on Monday morning, if you're like me, and you open up your day timer and you schedule who's coming over for dinner, where you're going over to dinner, all of the meetings that you have, the people that you need to call, the things that you need to do, the places you need to go, and you put all of those into your day timer, and then you start off on Monday morning with a well-devised plan for the week. And if everything goes as planned, you get Friday off or Saturday off. But so often, something comes up that is beyond your control. A medical emergency, a family crisis, something happens at work and they need you to work overtime, extra time, so you don't get the days off. In fact, you end up working more hours that week than you thought you were going to work. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. It happens to us not only with our day-to-day plans, but our vacation. You plan your vacation, you set apart the dates, and you ask for those days off, and you get the whole week off, and you plan to go camping with the family, and you pack up the trailer and you get everything ready and you're all ready to go, loaded for bear. And a rainstorm comes in, and it rains on your parade, and you have a week off to sit at home and do absolutely nothing. 
having wasted a vacation week, you can't go camping with your family. And you're frustrated. It happens to us financially. You set aside a little bit of money and you plan to buy that nice thing. And then the opportunity comes and you finally have the money. It's there. And before you can go out and spend the money on what you had wanted to spend the money on, the hot water heater breaks. And you've got to fix it or the stove goes gives up the ghost and you finally have to fix that or buy yourself a new refrigerator. It's angering, isn't it? Or that rainstorm that came in and rained out your camping trip showed you that you need a new roof. So then you've got to arrange to have new roofing put on. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. When it happens to our day-to-day schedules, it causes us frustration and anger, at least if we're not trusting in the sovereign providential purpose of God. When it happens to our vacation plans, it can be frustrating. When it happens to us financially, it can be disheartening. But friends, it also happens to us in ministry. We make plans, we set out to purpose to do something, only to find that the Lord Himself frustrates by His sovereign purpose our plans. And when that happens in ministry, it can be disillusioning, it can be disheartening, discouraging, and it can cause some people to up and quit. Is the problem with the planning? Is planning itself sinful? James chapter 4, James's point when he says to them, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a city, we'll do some business, we'll make a profit. And then James says, You don't know what tomorrow may bring. Your life is like a vapor. It comes for a little while and then it disappears just as quickly. What you ought to say is, If the Lord wills, we will do such and such and so and so. But he says, Instead, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Is it planning per se that's sinful? No, the problem is when we plan and we don't plan the Lord into the plans. The problem is when we make a plan and we factor out of our planning the Lord and His sovereign purpose. But we have to understand when we plan that God in His providence, God in His sovereignty is free to take our plan and scrap it and not explain it to us why He might do something. The Lord has never explained to me why He scrapped my plans, but He did. I'm thankful He did, that the Lord had a higher purpose than my plans. You know, friends, I find it comforting to me to find out that the Apostle Paul had some of his plans that got scrapped. One example is in Romans chapter 1. Writing to a church the Apostle had never visited, he says to them, I want you to know I have planned to come to you over and over again, but I have been prevented until now. I I want to come to you. I have made plans to come to you, but those plans have not been realized as of yet. At the end of the book, the Apostle reminded them again, I want to remind you how often I have planned to come to you. And I'm on my way to Jerusalem right now, he writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 15. But when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to spend some time there, and then I'm planning a trip to Spain. And on my way to Spain, I will stop off in Rome, and I will visit you there. I'll be helped by you then. I'll have an opportunity to visit with you. Never happened. The Apostle Paul never went to Spain. He did visit Rome. But it wasn't on his way to Spain, it was on his way to trial. And he wasn't a traveler, he was handcuffed, he was a prisoner of the empire. wasn't exactly how Paul had planned to visit Rome, but that was the Lord's plan. And Paul was fine with that. Whatever the Lord wills, that's what I'll take. Paul was a Proverbs 16, verse 9 type man. We understand that the man in his mind plans his path, but it is the Lord who directs his steps. We have to understand that in the end, it is only the sovereign, providential purpose of God that will become accomplished. It's not planning per se that is sinful. Even some of Paul's plans got scrapped. One instance was Romans 1. 
Another instance is in Acts chapter 16, and you'll have to have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 16. Another example of having your plans sort of be frustrated for a higher purpose comes to us on this second missionary journey. Paul and Silas and Timothy are traveling throughout the regions of Phrygia and Galatia. Verse 6 says they are visiting the churches that Paul and Barnabas had planted on their first missionary journey, and they are delivering to those churches the decrees of the Jerusalem Council regarding circumcision that they had decided back in chapter 15. And the apostle Luke writes to us in verse 6 that they passed through Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Now, verses 6 through 8 indicates to us that God had a purpose a little bit higher than what the Apostle Paul's purpose was. In Acts chapter 15, do you remember what Paul's purpose for the second journey was? Let's go back and visit the brethren in every city that we preach the word. It was pastoral, not evangelistic. But at some point, Paul sort of got an itching for evangelism, and he decided since he was out that way anyway, having reached, having gone west to Pisidian Antioch, that he would drop down into the region of Galatia, and if Paul was to sort of pursue what was his pattern, he would have been heading toward Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital city of Asia. It was Paul's habit to go into leading and prominent commercial cities and capital cities to plant churches. So Paul probably would have been heading to Ephesus. But verse 6 says that the Holy Spirit did not forbid them by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. He kind of hit a roadblock. He wanted to head left, which would have been southwest, into Asia, and he was forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So Paul decided, I'll turn right, turn around, and head up into Bithynia, which is northeast. But what happened? The Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Two different phrases, Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus, both referring to the same person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He tried to go into Asia, probably heading toward Ephesus, wanted to plant some churches there, and the Spirit said no. So he turned around and went the other direction, up toward Bithynia, and the Spirit of God said no. Now do you notice how much territory is covered in verses 6 to 8? If you're following the map that's on the back of your bulletin, you can see from leaving Pisidian Antioch, going all the way to Troas, that's a lot of territory that he covered. Interesting, isn't it, that nothing of record is noted there? No significant events, no conversions are marked, no churches that are planted. That All of that territory between Pisidian Antioch and Troas is not marked by anything that happened. What characterizes it instead is what didn't happen. What didn't happen? Paul wasn't allowed to preach. Paul wasn't allowed to evangelize. Now, friends, what are you and I to make of those statements? The Spirit of God did not permit Paul to preach in Asia. What? Why would the Spirit of God prohibit Paul from preaching anywhere? What could possibly be the purpose in that? That would be frustrating. Don't the people in Asia need to know the Lord? Well, if the Spirit of God says no, then we'll try Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus didn't permit them to preach in Bithynia either. What are you going to make of that? How is it, why is it that the Spirit of God would prohibit His Word from being preached in an area? It's not as if Paul's plans were sinful. It wasn't sinful to go into Asia. It wasn't sinful to go into Bithynia. The people in Asia needed to know the Lord. Paul's desire is to preach Christ where Christ has never been preached before. Asia, up to as far as we know, has never had a missionary sent into it. So Paul says, I'll target Asia. And so he heads for Ephesus. 
through Asia. And I think the Apostle Paul was itching to do some evangelism. Listen, there is a a little bit of thrill for the Apostle Paul in walking into an area and stopping into the synagogue and sitting there quietly until somebody realizes that, oh, we have a student of Gamaliel, a rabbi in our midst. Do you have a word that you would like to share with us like they did in Pisidian Antioch? And you remember what happens? Paul stands up and says, I'm glad you asked. I'd love to preach. And so he preaches Christ from the Old Testament Scriptures. And then he sits back and he watches the response. Some people believe. Some people don't believe. Some people mount a vicious opposition against the Word of God. There is some... The battle is on. And I think Paul was itching to get into those synagogues, but he was frustrated. The Spirit of God said, no. Well, we'll try Bithynia. There's some synagogues up there. We'll go up there and evangelize. And the Spirit of God said, no. So what's Paul going to do? What are we to make of the fact that the Spirit of God did not allow him to go into Bithynia or Asia? Well, Paul finds himself at the end of the hallway. This is what, for lack of a better term, we refer to as a closed door. You try to do something and all the opportunity just seems to shut down. It stops. He ran up against a closed door. Well, we'll try another door. So they try Bithynia. And that door was shut. Well, we can't go that direction either. It seems as if the Lord is hedging him in. Where can we go? Well, we can continue going westward, which is what he does. He heads west and up around Missy and finds himself at Troas. Having tried doors on his right and doors on his left, and having found that the Spirit of God was shutting those doors and hedging him in, the Apostle Paul, with Silas and with Timothy, found themselves at the end of a hallway that stopped at Troas. There he is, facing the Aegean Sea, on the westernmost coast of that. Looking out across the sea, on the other side of that is Macedonia, or what we would refer to today as Europe. You see, invading Europe with the gospel was not on the mind of the Apostle Paul. He was thinking Asia and Bithynia. But invading Europe with the gospel was on the mind of the Holy Spirit, who said, no, no, here's where I want you. And he started to hedge Paul in to this narrow corridor, and he stops at Troas. Now, up until this point, all of the direction that Paul has received has been negative. And I often ask myself, how did the Spirit of God prohibit him or forbid him from preaching? Did Paul lose his voice? Start to preach? Lost my voice. Did somebody come down ill so that they couldn't go into those areas? They had a prophet on the team, Silas, perhaps operating as a prophet did in the New Testament times before the close of the the New Testament canon. Silas functioned as prophets did, and that is to give revelation. Maybe the Lord simply revealed by revelation to Paul and Silas, That's not where you should go. Whatever happened, however it unfolded, because Luke doesn't tell us, Luke does attribute it to the sovereign working of the Spirit of God. So what are you and I to make of references like this where the Spirit of God prohibited them from preaching the Word? It's simply this. Luke is trying to get us to understand that the growth of the church and the direction of the Gospel was not Paul's to determine. It was the Spirit of God's to determine. It was the Spirit who was going to grow His church. And he was going to hedge Paul in and he was going to direct Paul right to where he wanted Paul to preach. I told you last week that the book of Acts shows us the sovereign direction of the Spirit of God in growing His church from Jerusalem to Rome. That's what Acts shows us. And here we see the Spirit of God hedging him in. He doesn't want Paul in Bithynia. He doesn't want Paul in Asia. And it's not that those people don't need the Lord. He wants Paul in Europe. He wants the Gospel in Rome. And so the Spirit of God says, No, No, and he brings him to Troas. Now, what do you do when you've run up against closed door after closed door? You get some rest. Verse 9. It says in verse 9 that in the middle of the night, I don't know if they were getting rest or they were just up talking and playing cards in the middle of the night, but verse 9, 
A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. The Apostle Paul received a vision. Much like the vision that was given to Peter when God was preparing Peter to meet Cornelius, much like that vision, God here is preparing the Apostle Paul for a ministry in Macedonia. And Paul receives in the night a vision, perhaps in the form of a dream, of a man who is beseeching him to come across the Aegean Sea into Macedonia. Come over here and help us. So he wakes up the next morning and he describes it to his traveling companions. Verse 10 says that when we had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Immediately they sought to go into Macedonia. They had to book a ship, book passage, and it was two days across the Aegean Sea by ship over to Europe or Macedonia. Now the word concluding is an interesting little word. It is a word that literally means to put things together, and here it refers to this. It refers to the act of putting things together in my mind and holding together all of these facts and drawing a conclusion from them. We concluded, that is, we put these things together and came to the conclusion, God is opening a door for us in Macedonia. And what that word indicates, that it was not the vision itself that caused Paul to go into Macedonia. There was all kinds of factors. What were they? Well, we tried to preach the gospel in Asia. That didn't work. We tried to preach the gospel in Bithynia. That didn't work. God seems to have hedged us in and given us no option but to head west. And finally we land in Troas and we're at the sea and we can see no open door for ministry. Then Paul has the vision. And as he looks back upon the last couple weeks of traveling and all the closed doors and how God had brought them to Troas, the light goes on. There's an open door right across the sea. The Lord must want us to go into Macedonia. And so immediately they decide that they're going into Macedonia. There's an interesting little word in verse 10. Look at it. Read it over. It's a word. I'll give you a hint. It's a word we haven't seen up until now. It's a small word. If you're having a hard time, let me give you a further hint. It is a small word that we haven't seen till now that indicates to us that somebody else has joined the party. We. We haven't seen we in the book of Acts until now, have we? But now we see we. We indicates to us that somebody else is on board. Who? The author of the book. It's in Troas that the Apostle Paul picked up Luke. Now listen, folks, if God had allowed Paul to go into Asia, and if God had allowed Paul to go into Bithynia, would he ever have met Luke? Not likely. Where did he meet him? At the end of that hallway at the Aegean Sea in Troas. Luke has joined the team. Now you have to be mildly observant to notice that, because just with the change of pronoun, Luke indicates to us that now there's four people traveling. One of them is Dr. Luke. He's with Paul. And he does it without much fanfare. In fact, there's no fanfare. Do you notice that? It must be just humility that keeps Luke from indicating to us why he joined the team or why Paul allowed him on board with them that day. But somehow he got on board with Paul. Somehow he joined the team. Do you notice when Luke introduced us to Silas, what we learned about Silas? He was a leader in the Jerusalem church. He was a prophet and a gifted teacher. Paul's reason for taking Silas along was obvious to everybody. When Luke introduces us to Timothy, what do we learn about him? Well, we learn that Timothy was well spoken of by all the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. He was a well-respected, mature man, somebody that Paul saw potential in, and Paul wanted him to come along. But when Luke introduces us to the fact that he has joined the team, what do we learn? Nothing. Not a thing. We. Luke is on board. 
And if it's not for Colossians and other books of the New Testament, we wouldn't know he was a doctor. We wouldn't know where he joined Paul or that he was with Paul to the very end. But because of the sovereign direction of the Spirit of God, Paul picked Silas, Paul picked Timothy, and when he showed up in Troas, I wish Luke would have been a little more forthcoming with some facts. How did Luke become a believer? When did Luke become a believer? Did Paul lead him to the Lord or was he a believer when Paul showed up there? Did Paul ask him to join the team because he needed a doctor? Or was there something else in Dr. Luke that Paul saw that he wanted with him? We don't know any of that. All we know is that now it's we. So there are four people now. We have Paul, we have Silas, we have Timothy, and Dr. Luke has joined the team. And they set sail from Troas, and they sail west across the Aegean Sea, and they land at Neapolis. From there, they are going to travel 10 miles from Neapolis all the way into Philippi along what was called the Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way. It was a military road that was built to connect Rome to its eastern provinces that they could march troops back and forth across the empire on. Today, it's still visible. You can see the paving stones in the Ignatian Way and where it went. It led from Neapolis, which is where it ended in the far east, all the way out to Rome. In fact, on the cover of your bulletin, is the Ignatian Way. That picture on the front, that is a picture of the Ignatian Way taken from Philippi. So you can imagine the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke walking right across the front of your bulletin there as they came into Philippi along the Ignatian Way. Ten miles they made their way into Philippi. Philippi was a city that was named after Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Philip II seized Philippi and because it had gold mines all the way around the city, so it was a a wealthy and prosperous city. He seized the city and named it after himself. If you're going to seize a city, you might as well name it after yourself. So he named it Philippi. Philippi in 42 BC, by the way, just for you history buffs, Philippi is the site where Mark Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius, the assassins of Julius Caesar. That happened in Philippi. Luke tells us that Philippi was a leading city of the district of Macedonia, not meaning that it was its capital because Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia, but by leading city, he means one of probably one of two things. Number one, it was rich, it was wealthy, it was powerful because of the gold mines. But second, Philippi had in it, and it was known for and popular for, a school of medicine. Now, what is Luke? He's a doctor. Where is he at when Paul picks him up? Troas. He travels with him to Philippi, and all the time they're in Philippi, it's we, 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 we. But when Paul lives, leaves Philippi, Luke switches back to the third person, never mentions we, until the third journey when Paul stops back in Philippi, and then it's we, we, we again. Interestingly enough, it was likely Luke who stayed in Philippi and helped the church there grow as the doctor, and he joined Paul on his third missionary journey. When Luke says there, it was a leading city of the district of Macedonia, there's a little local pride there. Maybe it is that Luke was a native of Philippi practicing medicine in Troas. Maybe the medicine school in Philippi was Luke's alma mater. Maybe that's where he went to school. But Luke is obviously intimately connected there. He joins the Apostle Paul and travels into Philippi. And Luke says that we stayed there for many days. And the other thing that Luke tells us about Philippi is that it was a Roman colony. Now that's a little detailed piece of information that we're going to unpack at a later date because it comes in important later in the chapter. So we'll put it up on a shelf in your gray matter until then. Just remember, Philippi is a Roman colony. That's going to come in handy at the end of Acts chapter 16. Now, as we leave this text this morning, I want to leave you with a warning. Here's the warning. We live in a day in which Christians seem ready to exchange the truth of the Word of God for any passing fancy, any experience, any shifting sand vision or thought. We live in a day when people, Christians, 
exchange the abiding, living, eternal, true, accurate, once for all delivered to the saints, unchanging word of God for any kind of a vision, any kind of a dream, any kind of a still small voice as their authority. And I want to warn you against taking passages like this in the book of Acts and thinking that they are a pattern for you. They're not. Let me point out just a couple of things about visions and dreams and guidance like this in the book of Acts that will help sort of immunize you against the temptation of thinking that this is how you receive proper guidance. Visions like this in the book of Acts, they were rare even for the apostles. You do not get the impression as you read through the book of Acts that this type of stuff happened all the time. Paul was not looking for a vision. He was not waiting for a vision. He was not waiting for writing in the sky. When the Lord said to Paul, no, what did Paul do? Did he get frustrated and say, well, then I'll take my toys and go home. If I can't do what I want to do, then I just won't minister. I'm going back to Antioch. Did he do that? What did he do? He just kept pressing on. He kept moving and looking and understanding that God in his providence will direct me to a place where I can preach. So that's what the Apostle Paul did. He wasn't waiting for a vision. He wasn't waiting for a dream. He wasn't waiting to listen to the voice of God. And you got to tune in to hear it. Because he might wake you up in the middle of the night and say something to you. Or he might say something to you while you're eating. It's not how Paul operated. It's not what Scripture teaches. This type of thing, even in the book of Acts, was rare. Second, when it happened in the book of Acts, it is always connected with the worldwide spread of the gospel message in the sovereign purpose of the Spirit of God. In Acts chapter 13, when the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas, it was to take the gospel to the remotest parts of the world. In Acts chapter 10, with Peter and Cornelius, it was for the purpose of bringing the gospel for the first time to an uncircumcised Gentile through the Apostle Peter. It always has the purpose of directing and extending the ministry of the gospel kingdom. Third, when it does happen in the book of Acts, I cannot emphasize this one enough, it happens to an apostle. Do you notice that? That's a significant little detail to me. It happened to an apostle. You say, what does all this have to do with me? Let me just remind you of something. You're not an apostle. Neither am I. Does that sound pedantic? You say, I really don't need to be reminded of that. Well, you do if you're of the nature that you think God is speaking to you through dreams and visions. I always get worried. You know, there was a day in, in the church and in our country where people who thought they heard directly from God They did things with those types of people. They locked them away for the public good. Now Christians all over the place just assign divine authority to their stray thoughts whenever they feel the inclination to do so. You're not an apostle. And I'm not an apostle. And so it seems that you and I would be hard-pressed to explain why it is that God is so interested in directing us personally apart from His Word if you're not an apostle. It seems to me you would be hard-pressed to explain why you are so significant in the plan of God that the Word of God, which claims to be sufficient for all of us, for all of life and godliness, is not sufficient enough for you. You have to get it straight from heaven. I question that. This is not a pattern for us, friends. This is unique. This was rare. It only occurred with the apostles. It was connected to the worldwide spread of the gospel ministry. The intention of the Spirit of God was to get the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome in 30 years' time, and he did it. How did he do it? He took gifted men during the apostolic age and he sovereignly directed them by these means. Nowhere ever in Scripture are we ever commanded to look for such a thing, to expect that kind of divine guidance, and nowhere are we ever instructed what to do if we were to get it. 
No text of Scripture ever says, here's how you discern if vision comes from the Lord or from Satan. Because visions are a dime a dozen. Joseph Smith had a vision. That doesn't prove anything. You can buy a vision. Satan can manufacture a vision. But we're never commanded in Scripture to look anywhere but to the Word of God as our source of authority and direction and guidance. Even the apostles who received the visions did not direct us to visions. Where did they direct us? We have, Peter said, a more sure word. This is what you look to. And so we obey the text of Scripture. We walk with the Lord in obedience to His Word. We plan, we purpose, we minister, and we step out in faith, and we trust that as the man plans his path, it's the Lord who will sovereignly direct his steps. And He does that through people who are obeying His Word. That's how God operates today. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for the Word and for the guidance that it gives us. If we did not have this more sure prophetic Word, we would be lost indeed. We would never have any means of discerning whether or not we are being spoken to by you or by our flesh or by a friend or by the devil. But we thank you that we have the certain and sure word of our God who gives us instruction that it never changes, it never passes away, and we can rely on it and trust it. We pray, God, that you would work within us that grace to look to your word, to obey it, to love it, and to thank you for it daily. It is our guidance, it is our anchor, it is our rock in uncertain times, and we look to it in order to get our direction. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.